preaching. I mean, Daniel, goodness gracious. We've got a member meeting, so we can wrap up. And we're good to go, save some time. Um, that was awesome. Um, I'm going to pray if that's okay. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you um, <clears throat> for your word. Thank you for giving me a chance to um, walk through this letter um, that Paul, your servant, your friend, um, uh, a slave to you, Jesus, who loved you with all that he had, um, got to write to these believers. I just ask that you would take these words, this prayer that he has um, for these believers, and I ask that you would take it into our hearts, that it wouldn't stay on the surface of our minds, um, but that you would, by your spirit, as Paul prays, take it into our inner being by your spirit um, to, with those believers that are waiting in heaven for us, comprehend here and now the amazing, inexhaustible love of God in Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not necessarily the neatest and tidiest person uh, around. If you know me, you know that. My wife knows that very well. Uh, but even I have some idiosyncrasies. One of those is I really, I need a door to be open or I need it to be shut. If I ask the door to be shut, I don't want it just touching the door frame. I want it all the way shut. There's this symmetry that I need for this door. And, and my wife is like, well, what about your car? What's I was like, don't judge not lest you be judged. Um, so there's this, this orderliness that I think we all contain in ourselves. And lucky for us, um, specifically this letter that Paul writes has amazing symmetry and has amazing intentionality on the way that it was structured. Um, and so tonight we're coming to a close on Ephesians 3, which is the first half. There's one through three, uh, first chapters, one through three, and then there's four through six. So you've got this amazing three chapters, which is about half the letter, um, and then another half. And there's a distinct shift. Um, it's been something helpful for me described as that hinge of a door. Um, where you've got one side and the other, and you've got this distinct shift. So as an, in an effort to kind of summarize and probably oversimplify, if we go to our first slide, um, chapters one through three, it's kind of this, this is who you are now in Christ. Paul expounds on the gospel, on what God has done in Christ, the good news of what God has done and what that means for these believers in Ephesus, and probably this letter getting circulated to other Gentile churches in that same area. Um, and he's telling, this is who you are, and there's gonna be this distinct shift. Tonight, we're gonna end with amen as he finishes this prayer, and then he's gonna jump into live like it's true. He's gonna say, therefore, pursue gentleness, kindness, compassion, forgive one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. He, he goes into how are they to live with one another, but it's all in light of what Paul wrote in that first half. So there you've got all these commands coming, all these things Paul's gonna walk through in three weeks from now, Randy's gonna kick us off with chapter four, um, but it's all in context of this first half of the chapter. In an effort to help visualize, the other thing that Paul did is he structured it, his first three in, in a chiasm, which is kind of this, to simplify, the first part matches the last part, and the second part matches the second to last part, and so on and so forth. So I'm gonna move to the first slide. You've got the first part, you've got this, um, these songs. The, he starts off Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 with a victory song, and he ends our first half of this letter to the Ephesians with this song <clears throat> of to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we think, ask, or imagine according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever, amen. So he starts it with this song, he ends it with this song, and then the second part, you can move to the next slide. 
he prays for the Ephesian believers. In chapter 1, 15 through 21, he prays for them that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they may know the hope of their calling, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and the amazing power at work within us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And then he ends it uh, with this prayer that we're going to go through in chapter 3, 14 through 19, where he prays for them to be strengthened in the inner being by the Spirit to comprehend the love of Jesus that goes beyond knowledge and to be filled with all the fullness of God. So you've got these amazing prayers matching. Um, then it moves on, um, the second part, or the third part, Christ's double reconciliation in chapter 2, 1 through 18. He talks about how they've been reconciled from slavery to sin and the supernatural enemy, Satan, the ruler of this world, to reconcile to God. And not only that, reconciled Gentile to Jew. So reconciled to God, but also reconciled to each other. We're newness of life, new humanity, one new people. And then it comes into the very center to the next slide, chapter 2, 19 through 22, God's new temple. You've got this a beautiful verses that say, So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you've got this center. Um, and it's amazing that you see the center because this is the start of our scriptures and the end of our scriptures, where in Genesis 2, God forms man and woman and he places them in Eden, this place that when God told the Israelites to build the temple, they, they structured it off of Eden, of a place where God was, where man and woman, humanity lived with God. And so he put them in Eden to take care of it. And then fast forward to Genesis, uh, Revelation 21, when God makes all things new. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw a, a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So this is the ultimate end of all things. God living with us, us with him. No more sickness, no more disease, no more death. But when Jesus came and brought heaven to earth, he started that reality. The kingdom of God is here and now, but the fullness of it is to come. And so now he's centering that last part as you are God's new temple, the place where his presence dwells. It's the center of all things that God is with us and we are with him. And it is our ultimate future. And Paul wants the Ephesian believers, he wants us in this room to know tonight that is our ultimate future. Unbroken fellowship with God together. Diverse group of people from all different nations and all different tongues, all worshiping Jesus together in perfect communion with him like he had in Eden. Okay, so that's a picture. If you want to take a picture of it, read through the first three chapters of Ephesians, see if that matches up for you. Please do that. It's, it's a beautiful structure that Paul gave. But now we are in this beautiful prayer where Paul goes in a chapter 3, verse 14. If you don't mind going there with your eyes on that phone Jonathan talked about or your Bible, <clears throat> verse 14, what we're going to see in this prayer um, is really three things. We're going to see Paul's 
deepest desire for these believers. We're gonna get a glimpse into his desire for these Christians, these followers of Jesus in this, in this place of Ephesus. And then we're gonna see an unapologetic request for experience, which may surprise some of us, an unapologetic request for experience. And then lastly, a resulting Christ-likeness a resulting Christ-likeness. So, chapter three, verse 14, let's read it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And remember, when we, last week, Paul started this prayer, and then he went off, and he had to tell them about how he'd become a minister of this reconciliating gospel, like we see in that second part of that, um, that chiasm. And so, he picks back up this prayer, um, but we have to stop because he says, I bow my knees before the Father. Um, in that context, in the Jewish context, it was, it was common to stand and pray, not to kneel and pray. Um, and the distinction of kneeling and prayer expressed deep emotion and deep um, desire. Um, in Acts 20, 30, 36 through 37, we see Paul's telling these very Ephesian elders. He gathers the elders together and he tells them, you're not gonna see my face again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, God has revealed to me that I'm, you're not, we're not gonna see each other again. And so it says they went down and they kneeled and prayed and wept with the Ephesian believers. So it said very specifically, they knelt together and wept and prayed because of that deep sadness. And then in Luke 22, 41, Jesus in the, in the Mount of Olives before he's gonna go to his crucifixion as he's distressed and about to, uh, sweat drops of blood, it says he went and knelt and prayed. So what we see here is Paul very intentionally, before he starts this prayer, makes the distinction that he's kneeling and praying. Uh, there's a, a hymn by a guy named James Montgomery, an old hymn, and it says, prayer is the soul's sincere desire, utter or uttered or unexpressed, the motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. So what we're getting here as we get into this prayer, we recognize we are getting a glimpse into Paul's deepest desire for these believers that he had painstakingly written this and structured this letter to. So we get, when we start into this, when we recognize this is, this is a deep desire, longing that Paul has for these believers. So we move into it and he goes in that um, from he bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so we see he's praying to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named again marking this desire for unity to bring all people in this new humanity underneath one father. And even in the spiritual realms, even the families in heaven, even the unseen realm, bringing it all together under one father. And he says, according to his riches, the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened in his inner being. This is, as he prays and as he makes these requests, Paul's very clear in this last song that we have, he's very clear, the only way this happens is by the power and glory and riches of God. The only way that this prayer gets accomplished, the only way we can 
taste and see, as a preview, taste and see that God is good and actually taste of his love is that God breaks in himself to show us everything that we know to be true about the gospel and how Jesus died for us and he rose again, that by his spirit, he takes it deeply into us and allows us to taste it, not just to know about it. So we, we see there that he's strengthened with power through his spirit. Again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit, clearly. But in our inner being, in, in Jewish thought, this is not just the emotions, but the wholeness, the, the fullness of who we are, body, soul, and spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So you've got this amazing phrase in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, this only comes through that communion that we get to have with Jesus. And this, this word dwell is really interesting because there's two different words of dwell in Greek, but this one denotes not just stopping off at a hotel, but a place where you take up residence, where you take up residence. It's your home that you've lived in for many years, where you are taking up residence, you're taking your time, you're building a living place there makes me think of Jesus' words in John 14 when he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. It's such a striking statement, we will make our home with him. In Revelation 3, talking to a group of Christians, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in with him, into him and eat with him. Got this amazing recognition of intimacy, of fellowship, of home. And that through this, you be rooted and grounded in love. Paul gives these amazing um, connecting words, uh, rooted and grounded. It's kind of rooted and founded. He does the analogy of the tree, um, of, of the tree of deep roots into God, but also the foundation of this building that's built on the cornerstone of Christ. So he may, uses this imagery. And all through this prayer, Paul is using this imagery to try to get to the reality that we are rooted and grounded in love. And he moves into verse 18, where he has this stark request. And this is where we see an unapologetic request for experience for these believers that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I love that Michael read that psalm tonight. We didn't talk about it. This was not planned. Um, but you see that imagery of as far as the heavens are above the earth, so High is God's love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So even the psalmist is using this imagery to try to grasp at the ungraspable, which is the immeasurable love of God for his people. And so you see this here. He starts it off. And he goes in that praying that they would be strengthened with power through the spirit in their inner being to know the love that, is higher and deeper and longer and wider and that same love that goes beyond knowledge. And I, the thing that's striking to me is that this request, this desire that he has for the Ephesians 
It's, it's unbridled. He doesn't qualify it with anything else. But I do, I do want to make that di- distinction that from our, in our Christian life, there are many seasons that God takes us through where we do have a sincere distance from God and an absence of a feeling of his presence and his love and his presence. And he, he takes us through those times, I believe, to take us deeper into him. I told a story one time when I went to buy some bushes from a, a, a gardener, and I know nothing about uh, landscaping whatsoever. And we were going to plant these bushes right before winter. I was like, is this a good idea? And he said, yeah, you plant those bushes right before winter, and once they're in the ground during the winter, you won't see anything happening. Um, but as you water it and you take care of it, those roots go deep down into the ground during winter, and you won't see anything above the ground. But when spring comes, there's a strength underneath that ground. And when the flowers come out, when the time for blooming happens, there's a stability in those plants that happens during the winter season. Um, and I just want to make make it clear. You see it all throughout Scripture. One example is Psalm 88, where you see this just lament, a lament of God's distance, um, of where is he in his, in his troubles, in his, um, in his hurting, and it just got his feeling so distant. And so that is a very real reality. Nevertheless, Paul is unapologetic in asking for this. There's a quote from John Piper, and he's talking about Romans 5, 5, which he says that God's love, we, our hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And in talking about that verse, he says, this is a spirit-given experience of God's love, not a logical inference from an argument. It is something poured out. It is something felt in the heart, known in the way that the heart knows. There's a um, guy who wrote extensively on this, Jonathan Edwards, and he uses a very simple but hard-to-beat analogy that someone can tell you and explain to you that honey is sweet, can tell you that it's sweet, and you can even believe them. You can even say, yeah, I, I absolutely believe that honey is sweet, but there is a difference when you taste that honey. You know that it's sweet in a different way. Even if you believed everything that everyone said about honey, when you taste it, there's a shift, there's a difference. I believe this is what Paul is getting at here, and I believe what a biggest heart for us tonight is that we would take from here that God wants us to taste of his love in a way that goes beyond knowledge, goes beyond comprehension, a way that we can say the height, the depth, the width, the length, I can't grasp it, it's too much. I love these spatial things that Paul uses here. Um, one of the um, <clears throat> videos, YouTube stuff my boys watch, um, is these size comparison videos. I don't know if you guys have seen those, but this is one of those, and I think all parents, um, or it's just me, uh, that's fine, have these, these type of videos where I'm walking by, and I'm like, what, is, what, are they, what, is, what are they watching this time? What, what is this? And then it's half an hour later, I'm sitting next to Caleb on the couch, and I'm like, I think we should do that one next. And then I've, revoked, I've left all my responsibilities and we're doing an hour of size comparison videos. But there's these videos where it's like the size of stars, and it starts out with our sun, and then they zoom out. And then there's a star that's 100 times bigger than, than our sun, our star. And then it's like, oh my gosh, it's huge, and it keeps getting back. And, the, and you get to the point where like, there's no way there's a star bigger than that star, which is seven million times bigger than our sun. And then it zooms out, and you're just like, this star 
is bigger than, it's, it's incomprehensible. And then he's got these ships and these, these shipwrecks and he goes to the depth of the shipwreck and it's like this many thousand feet and then it keeps going down and just when you think you've hit the bottom, it keeps going further down. Um, and so me and Caleb spending hours doing that. Um, but I love that imagery of just when you think it couldn't get bigger, it couldn't go deeper, just when you think our God is that big. And if, you need, if we need to take the reality of our universe that we live in, it is helpful. It is helpful because just when we think we can reach the end of it, and the Bible is very clear, God is love. It defines God as love. And so if we think we've, we've reached the end or we think we've exhausted his patience or his kindness, we have not. We haven't. And Paul is grasping at that. And he's requesting God in heaven, that God that's bigger than we thought, better than we thought, to grant these believers, these Ephesian believers, to be able to taste of the love of the gospel that he just expounded upon in these first three chapters of Ephesians. I'm gonna read it again because Michael brought it up, Psalm 103, it's in my notes. Let's do it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Best we can do with words on the love of God is imagery. But God wants to do more. And he can do more by his power through his spirit for us. I just wanna note that this is not based on circumstances either. This isn't based on how things are going in our lives. And we know that when we look at Romans 8. We sang about it in the, the first song in Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, listen to this language, nor height nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's not based on how things are going, famine, distress, nakedness. Paul's writing this to a group of people that are living in a hard time where there's persecution, where infant mortality rate is, is higher than we can imagine in our modern day. And this is what he prays for them. He knows these things these circumstances are going on in his life, and Paul probably cared about them, but this was his deepest prayer for these believers, that they would be able to comprehend and grasp this love that goes beyond knowledge. Moving into that, verse 19, to know the love of Christ that goes beyond knowledge. I remember the first time that I read this, and it struck me, probably read it a million times, but the first time that it struck me how do I know something that goes beyond knowledge? How do I know it? Paul was brilliant. He was not anti-intellectual. <laughs> He's a brilliant man. But he knew from his own experience that they needed the power of the living God by the Holy Spirit to be able to receive 
what he had already told them was true, that God loved them and Jesus died to reconcile him, them back to himself. He knew that they needed the Holy Spirit to take this deeply into their heart. There's no way around the need for supernatural help from God to receive this love. Can we go to the next slide? Hello. That's a little place called Lauterbrunnen. We've got this TV, I don't know if y'all have this, it's like a Google TV, and it just cycles through these the amazing pictures of beautiful places around the world. <clears throat> and I remember we would consistently see these pictures that pop up on our TV screen as this like little slideshow. And we would see these, these places, and I'm like, where in the world is that? And it's always from this magical place called Switzerland. Um, and honestly, living in Houston, that might as well be Narnia for me. It doesn't, I'm not even, I don't even understand how a place like that could possibly exist. So it, it's just like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't sink, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by it, but it still is hard to believe that it's an actually real place. However, through happenstance, and because I'm blessed and highly favored um, by God, our, our um, one person like that, um, our, uh, my company, uh, through this, through one of our biggest vendors had this trip, and I don't even know what happened. It, it was like a month before the trip happened. They're like, hey, do you wanna go on this free trip to Switzerland? And I said, I think so, let me check with my wife. Um, and and uh, one of those pictures was on our, on our TV screen one night, and I was like, hey, Carrie, you wanna go there? And she just laughed, and I was like, no, seriously, we're gonna go there. Um, and so we went. Um, we went to Switzerland, and I remember seeing this picture of Lauterbrunnen on my TV, and yet you see that little road down there at the bottom of the screen. If you keep going this way, there's a train, and you get off that train, and I walked down that road, and there is no way and no words that I can use to accurately to describe to you what it's like to walk down that road. Breathtaking. I mean, there, was, there, wasn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. There's clouds in that picture, and it was like 68 degrees. I don't know what happened. It was a magical moment. I walked down that road, and there's no way um, that I can describe it, and I will always take that memory with me, and all of us have those same memories in our lives. All of us have those moments of beholding beauty, being a, just consumed with the beauty of a place. Um, and even as I look at that picture, it's beautiful to me, but the reality of walking down that road is something different altogether. This has been the experience for Christians that have borne amazing fruit in their lives throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. Um, and I just wanna give us a um, short example of four of these believers. Um, these are all people that live remarkable lives for Jesus and showed so much fruit, but they all had distinct moments and times and experiences, probably many, multiple um, experiences, but, but for them, very distinct moments in time where God pulled back the, the curtain by, by his spirit and allowed them to taste of what they already had believed to be true. These were already believers. They already knew what they already, most of the cases were preaching, but God pulled back the curtain and allowed them to again taste that honey was sweet. Um, one was D.L. Moody, born in 1837, amazing evangelist, thousands of people coming to know the Lord. Um, he was a preacher, and yet these, um, uh, little, uh, these uh, older ladies were praying for him to be filled with power of the Holy Spirit, um, and he described uh, a day. It goes like this, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. 
Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Charles Finney was born in 1792, led an amazing revival in the Second Great Awakening, and this was his description. The Holy Spirit seemed to go through me body and soul. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. These waves came over me and over me and over me until I cried out, I shall die if these continue. Lord, I cannot bear it anymore. Two different distinctly men, and, and yet you see that connection that they almost had to ask God to stop. It was too much. Francis um, Havergal was a, a, um, a hymn writer, um, uh, wrote Take My Life and Let It Be, an amazing believer, um, an amazing follower of Jesus, devout following to Jesus, but she longed for a deeper experience of God's rich love that she believed to be true and lived in it. She made this, um, this quote as she wrote to her sister Marie. She had a distinct time. It's no mistake, Marie, that about the blessing God sent me, December 2nd, 1873. It is far more distinct than my conversion. I can date that. I can't date that. And when she said um, about that experience, I am always happy and it is such peace. Blaise Pascal, the last one, was born in 1600s and uh, he was a literal genius. Um, a mathematician, a philosopher, invented the calculator. I don't know what you guys have been doing with your life. Um, but this guy was extremely accomplished, and he grew up in a day in the Enlightenment where people were moving away from the need for God. Um, Voltaire, Descartes, they were moving away. These philosophers realized they didn't need God. Um, but but Blaise was smart enough to know that that wouldn't work, and he did need God, so he believed um, the Lord, he, he has this quote that says, reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. Kind of sounds like to know the love that goes beyond knowledge. Um, and although he had been a nominal Christian um, and he even gotten fired up about the faith once, other things became more important to him. But something shifted in his life and he was set on fire for God um, and there was just, you can read about an amazing philosopher, wrote some amazing um, books defending the faith in his day. When he died, they found his favorite coat, and inside his favorite coat, over his heart, um, was sewn um, a parchment or a letter, um, and it had written on it an experience um, that doesn't seem like he talked about or shared with anyone. They only found it after he died, but it, it was so marked him that he sewed it into his jacket to stay over his heart wherever he went. And this is a portion of that that was written. <clears throat> the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 till about half past midnight. So for two hours, and there's a space, and just in all caps was written, fire. 
God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, which he was. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. Joy, 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 tears of joy. There's no way he could describe what happened to him that night in 1654 on November 23rd, but he knows what happened as God pulled back the curtain and allowed him to taste the love of God that goes beyond knowledge, and it changed his life so much so that he took it wherever he went. But it is just that. He, he didn't live in that experience, and none of us do. In this world, in this time, where we still have an enemy, where we still have our own flesh, we're still living in this world, not an unbroken fellowship. God has still given us his spirit. We still don't live in that reality that Blaze lived in, but he took it with him, and it changed him. I went to Lauterbrunn, and I really did. I went there, and I'm t I'll take it with me wherever I go, but I don't live there. I live here. I went to heaven, but I live on earth, Houston, Texas. I was able to walk the street, and that marked me, and for Blaze, he took that with him, and it changed him, and it was a gift that God gave him. But his life was still our lives, and I think the biggest thing I wanna say or make clear tonight is that we're not second-rate Christians, we're not, if we haven't had this experience that Blaise Pascal has had or whatever it is, or that we have it in our mind that it needs to look like something, all we need to take away is that God wants to do this for us. He wants to show us, he wants us to taste of his love. He wants us to experience what we all, most of us in this room would know and assent to mentally. Those tastes, those moments of clarity in his love are tastes of our future. The future that will have us in un unbroken enjoyment of the love that goes beyond knowledge forever and ever says this is a mystery that Paul wrote to the Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Paul wrote that Christ may dwell in your hearts that he may abide in you and you in him. As we taste of that intimacy and his love for us, it's the hope of our future glory. It's a taste of what heaven will be here and now that he brought to us as he stepped into this world 2,000 years ago as a poor boy born into a barn, lived this life and taught us and showed us what God was like, but not only that, he died and he rose again so that he could bring us into what he had, which was the same love that he enjoyed for all of eternity. As he prayed before he left, I pray that they would be with me where I am to see my glory. So he brought that to earth. He put it in us and he wants us to taste and take it with us as a pointing to the hope of our future. Verse 19 ends with that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, which is another striking thing to say, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, and most commentators agree that this, this indicates a, um, a distinct um, fruit of a life, a fruit of a life lived. And I think the easiest way for me to think about it is Colossians 1.19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If we wanna look what it, what it looks like to be filled with all the fullness of God for a human being, we look at Jesus and how he lived and how he loved. So God's goal in this is not so that we have spiritual experiences. It is for us to be turned into the image of God, to live as he lived in 1 John. Jesus lived in the fullness of God as he came out of the baptism waters, knowing that this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. This is what he did everything from. And what a difference it is when we live from God's love for us as opposed to living for his love. Instead of loving others because we are loved rather than loving others in order to be loved. It's a universe of difference. It's what God wants for us, it's his desire for us, that we would know his love. We love him because he first loved us. He wants to give it to us, but it doesn't stay there. It bears fruit. It bears the fruit that looked like Jesus's life, which was people were loved, the marginalized were welcomed in, the sinners were brought good news, the poor were brought good news. It looks like a life of love. And that's his goal for us in this is to be filled with his fullness. If that love of God for us, though, stays only as a concept or a doctrine that we hold to as opposed to an experienced reality, we will not be able to know what it means to be filled with his fullness and have the power to live the life that Jesus lived. And again, the biggest thing I feel from, from God tonight is he wants us to know that he longs to give this to us. He longs us to know and to empower us to know this love that goes beyond knowledge. Because we look at verse 20, how is this possible? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. In the end, always, it's his glory, always. But how will this happen, and, and what, what will this look like? And, and I, God, I, these are so many things that I'm going through, and this is what I'm wrestling with, and there's just been so much, such a time of dryness or waiting or whatever it is, how will this happen? He is able to do far more abundantly than all we think, ask, or imagine. Paul is so clear on this. We can expect, we can hope, we can pursue, we can seek him because he is able to do more than we ask, more than we think, more than we seek. So what do we do with this, I think is a good question. Um, and I just have three, three things um, that stuck out, stuck out to me in thinking about um, if this is true, and this is a striking prayer from Paul, if this is true, then what do we do when we leave here? What are some things that we can step into? Um, the first one is just pray, seek, ask, wrestle. 
It's desire. Luke 11, Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, instead will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's interesting, this word in verse 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. It, it, it actually has more of the connotation of to lay hold of, or even more violently, to plunder, um, to grasp, to go get it. And so I think a big question I have for us as we think about our own lives and if we're honest with our own lives, the question is, do we want to experience God in this way? Or do we need to? Do we want to? Do we need it? Can we live without it? Can we live without God and without knowing this love that goes beyond knowledge? Psalm 63, one says, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you like in a dry and parched land where there is no water. He didn't want water. He needed water. He was in the desert. If you're in the desert and you don't have any water, it's not just, oh, I, I would like, some, I think I'd like some water. Some water would be great. I need it or I'm going to die. And it's just evaluate and think about as we've set up our lives, and this is for me, <laughs> this is for me, as we've set up our lives, have I set it up in a way where I don't really need, to, need God to come through in these ways to reveal to me just how incredible his love is to taste and see. I would like it, that sounds nice, but am I gonna die? Bowing was not just emotion or desire, but it was um, in that time and in that day, an act of submission. It was an act of surrender. If you're gonna bow your knees before someone, Jesus had people come bow their knees before him. I think that's another aspect of our seeking and of our desire of going after God for this. Is that we have to come to him in a heart of surrender. A heart of submission, a heart of, you've got my whole life. I'm not gonna hold anything back from you. Because he wants to pour this out on us. And so many times in my own life, my hindrance is the things I've put up in front of God. I'm at the time unwilling to lay down. But he's so kind and he's so patient with us. It's amazing. That's my testimony. <laughs> I don't know if it's yours. And the other thing is we pray, seek, ask, as we wrestle, as we go and, try and grasp this and go take hold of it and wrestle for it, is we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're getting to that in chapter six, but against rulers and powers and authorities Satan desperately wants you to stay content without needing to taste and know the love of God. Just don't pursue this. There's gonna be lies put in your path. There's gonna be things always in your way to settle for less than what God wants for you and for us as Hope Church. Satan is after that with all that he has to have us settle 
and not take hold of all that God wants for us. So we don't, when we wrestle for this, when we're fighting this, God's not unwilling. We're not wrestling against God. He's the most willing party in this equation. <laughs> we have a spiritual, supernatural enemy who wants to keep us from this at all costs. And so we go on with our days and our weeks, and we have our lives. And we don't really need God. <clears throat> the second piece would be live in loving Christian community. This is a crucial piece. Um, in, in verse 17, it says that you may be rooted and grounded in love, and that's together, rooted and grounded in love together from the love of Christ, but also loving one another, very different from one another, Jew and Gentile, different nations, all the differences, all the variances, learning to love one another. So to pursue tasting of this love, receiving this from God, we must stay connected to love and Christian community, learning to love one another, but also receiving this love from God through each other. It's essential. It's non-negotiable. We have to have it um, as we pursue this and as we respond to this prayer to Paul. And lastly, and Michael, you can come up, um, is uh, to look at Jesus. To look at Jesus. To consistently bring before our minds through scripture, through meditation, through prayer, Jesus' great love for us. Specifically, looking at the cross, looking at his body bloodied, put on that cross because of the wickedness of sin, the ugliness of sin, the ugliness of my sin. I see Jesus there. The ugliness of my rebellion against God, I see Jesus there, bloodied and broken on that cross. So I'm convinced of my depravity, of what I've done to Jesus, but also in the same moment as his body is bloody and broken on that cross, I'm convinced of God's love for me because he didn't spare his only son. He didn't keep him from us, and Jesus was willing to go to that length to bring us into fellowship with him. So as we, as we look at the cross, we see the brutality of our sin that put him there, and we also at the same time, behold his love. There's a, a man who had a deep impact on my life, and I would assume a deep impact on a lot of lives in this room, um, a guy named Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, um, out of uh, a church in New York, and he died this Friday. He passed away this Friday. Um, and uh, so many things um, that he contributed to my spiritual walk. Uh, beautiful life, well-lived. Um, but he has this famous quote, it's kind of unbeatable. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And Pastor Keller also knew that we needed the power of the Holy Spirit to truly behold that love. That as we look at the cross, Many of us can mentally assent that yes, Jesus died for my sins. He loved me by dying. But we need God himself to take that and to penetrate all the lies that the enemy has set up, 
all our own brokenness and sin, all of our shame, all of our unworthiness, all the things the world has put up in its place. We need God himself to take that reality of Jesus on the cross, broken for me, loving me to death. We need him to take it past all of those barriers and to reveal to us, oh, that love is true, that love is real in a way that I don't even have words to express. One of those marker special times for me is in a daily reading plan, reading through Isaiah 53, which is prophecy of, of Jesus, suffering servant, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was put my punishment, was on him. By his wounds we are healed. I'd read it a hundred times. But that day, as I read it, without any expectation, I was just doing the reading plan, I read through those words, and God broke in in such a way that the reality of Jesus whipped for me, broken for me, came so powerfully into my bedroom that I wept and I couldn't explain to you the reality that I tasted, that I could have told and preached and taught a million times of his love for me that day, his love for me throughout all eternity in that act as he went and died for me. But God graciously took that looking at Jesus in that way in Isaiah 53, he took it and he broke past all my barriers, all my defenses and all the lies. And I tasted in that moment, and that's something that I take with me to know that love he has for me is real. And I need to go back to those times and I do go back to those times um, and I, I, I would love for us tonight to just very simply pray together and stop and recognize this is a pretty intense prayer and a pretty intense thing, um, but our God is gracious and kind and he wants to meet us. So I'd love for us to bow our heads as Michael prays. We're just gonna pray for a second. Um, the first thing that I would love for us to do is thinking about these words of Paul. Can we just to ourselves um, pray for each other? And even if people come into our minds um, as we pray, let's pray for them, but let's pray for each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ and Hope Church as the prayer team comes up uh, to the corners of the room. Let's pray for each other that your brother and sister here in Hope Church would be able to, by the power of the Spirit, grasp and taste and receive the love that goes beyond knowledge. 